You're listening to the RUV English podcast. To hear more and for all the news from Iceland in English, just head to ruv.is slash English. Hello, welcome to Ruv English. I'm Darren Adam. Last month, the Icelandic Met Office brought together researchers and stakeholders to understand research questions about multi-hazards in Northern Europe's remote regions, parts of Scotland, Norway, and of course, Iceland as well. All part of the Emerge project, which tries to quantify some of those risks, the hazards that can be presented by the extraordinary landscape, certainly of Iceland and the other countries that I mentioned, but also the climate in those parts of the world and the changing climate as well. Researchers and interested parties joined the conversation from a variety of different places. And over the course of this programme, you'll hear my conversations with Hayley Fowler, Professor of Climate Change Impacts at Newcastle University, Michael Cranston, Lead Forecaster for Flood Hazards in Scotland, a very familiar face to many in Iceland, Magnus Tumi Gudmundsson, who is Professor of Geophysics at the University of Iceland, Matthew Roberts, who's the Managing Director of Service and Research at the Icelandic Met Office, and we start with Dr. Chris White from the University of Strathclyde. He's head of the Centre for Water, Environment, Sustainability and Public Health at the University. He told me a little bit more about the Emerge project and his reasons for being part of the discussion taking place last month. The Emerge project um, was an idea that came about two, three years ago, uh, which was to uh, look quite specifically at the regional and remote aspects of a changing climate from a natural hazards perspective, uh, looking at it from uh, multiple country um, angles. I think research in this space has traditionally kind of focused on perhaps one country mm. or indeed urban centres. That's where the largest population are. But a few of us that work in the space of natural hazards and climate change science and operational forecasting recognize that in remote places, in places that are a long distance away from perhaps a, a hub or an urban center, have unique problems and unique challenges mm. when it comes to natural hazards. So here in the Emerge project, we're bringing people together uh, from across three countries, Iceland, which is where we are now, uh, the UK, northern part of the UK, mainly Scotland, um, uh, and Norway, mm. to look at natural hazards, how they're changing, what that means for remote and rural places in particular, um, and how we can learn from each other and forward this as a, as a, as a framing and as, a, as an area of research. 90%, I think I'm right in saying, of natural hazards are weather-driven. Presumably, there's a point at which they all start to interact with each other. Uh, that's right. If, if you take um, uh, that concept as, as far as you, you want, yes. everything connects to everything else sure. at some point, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> whether that's at the impact or whether it's what causes yeah. them. But there's a growing recognition and a growing understanding with climate science and weather forecasting that many of the processes and many of the hazards that are caused by, by our weather um, will often interact with each other or will trigger something else. So mm. whilst the impact that someone might see or experience might be a flood, for yeah. example, that may have been caused by uh, a landslide or an earthquake even further uh, in a different part of the system. Yeah. 
But when you look at it perhaps from a weather perspective, our, our weather systems, our weather patterns are, are, are linked and, and um, not independent. They're related to each other. Mm. And, and that's part of the reason why we brought these three countries together, because our weather systems are... Uh, we experience the same weather, mm. but in different ways. But we can again learn from each other about how yeah. we deal with deal with those. And there's a lot to study in this field, isn't there? As far as Iceland is concerned, this is a place which has lots of those rural areas, lots of those natural threats. I, I joined the session a few moments ago when you were talking, maybe learning about what happened in Seyðisfjörður a couple of years ago with the the mudslides in East Iceland. There's a lot for emerge to study in a country such as this? If, if you could term Iceland as a, as a case study or as a yeah. test bed area, Iceland would be the perfect one to, 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 to do because yeah. Iceland has a, a, a very wide range of natural hazards that it has to deal with. And it's interesting when you then relate that to, say, countries like Norway or the UK, we all, all three countries have remote places and remote regions, mm. but perhaps a different flavour of natural hazards that might yeah. affect those regions. Yeah. And so each country might deal with those slightly differently. Um, but you're absolutely right. There are some particular challenges here, I think, in Iceland that we perhaps don't see quite so much in the UK. In particular, I think, um, the, uh, the large influx of tourists in t into Iceland, yes. often in, um, well, potentially risky places. And... Um, how to deal with that influx, a large group of people that may or may not be as informed about the risks as uh, yeah, the government, uh, government may wish to, to be. It's a huge problem, isn't it? Because when you've got, and it's great in so many ways that this is the case, when you've got a country such as Iceland, which is projected, I think, on some estimates to reach six million tourists in one year by the end of this decade, obviously that's fantastic for the economy. Obviously, for something that's such a big part of the economy as tourism is, that's wonderful. But it's going to come at a price. And I guess the question is how you lower that price as much as possible. And, uh, yeah, completely. And, uh, and I think you can almost match that sort of rapid rise of tourism with the rapid change of the climate that we're also seeing. So we're starting to see hazards either happening more frequently or you know, the, the period in between them happening is, is, is now shortening. Uh, we're starting to see hazards in areas where we haven't really seen it too much before. Mm. If we look in Scotland last year, and again already this year, there are water scarcity, drought, um, not drought warnings, but not far away from those. Um, that's a different type of hazard, of course. Yeah. But they are becoming more prevalent in a changing climate. So if you if you were to match up the rapid change of our climate and extreme weather events and the impacts that we like to see yeah. with the example you just used there of uh, a large influx of, of tourists coming into, into a particular country and into these places, you have a large group of people all in the same area at the same time. Mm. You're, you're sort of um, uh, setting the scene really for, for potentially something quite significant to happen. And so I think that's a key focus there for what we want to try and do in this project is we can't solve all of those problems, but we can definitely raise the awareness mm. that this is an issue. And it, it, as I think you said a moment ago, there are so many questions, so much work needs to be done here. In Iceland and indeed in Norway and the UK and many other countries, 
you know, people are working hard to try and address these challenges and yeah. work towards solutions for, 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 the, for these things. But I think in Iceland, the, the risk is it's two tourists. That's, that's who's most at risk here. That's the group of people most at risk because you've got a, an ever-increasing number of people coming into a landscape and coming into an environment which is unlike others. Um, you know, I, I'm from the north of Scotland originally myself. I've not lived there for about 30 years, but I think of the North Coast 500, for example, which is a road around the north of the country. I, when I was a kid, I just knew that as the road to Durness, but it's now a major tourist attraction. It's not dangerous, though, in the same way, potentially, as much of Iceland is, especially during the winter. And when you've got tourists who don't quite grasp that, yes, Iceland is drivable, you can navigate your way around it, but it requires, if not special skills, then you've got to take special care. The number of tourists who are going to find themselves at risk of, of serious injury or worse is, is going to increase, isn't it? I, c- I completely agree. And um, I think there was a, a, I can't remember the exact number, but there are a number of tourists throughout the year that come to Iceland. It isn't just in the summer months. Yeah, the yeah, example absolutely. used of Scotland there, yeah, the vast majority, I would say, are in the, the summer or summer months or the shoulder seasons, less so in winter. Um, maybe that will also increase, of course, at, yeah. at, at some point. But for, for here, for Iceland and, and tourists, and, and putting themselves in danger without realising, it's no, not really a fault of their own, but without realising that their pets are, are doing so, they're either mm. not as prepared as they perhaps need to be, or... Um, uh, you know, don't have past the right equipment or just simply they are, are unaware of how they would receive a message to do with a warning. Yes. So they could yeah. just simply be in the wrong place at the wrong time and no one knows how, where they are or how to reach them. Mm. What have you learned from your colleagues here today and what do you think they're learning from you? Um, I think we've learned, so this is the fourth workshop we've done and this is and the final one in, in the project. We have learned that across the three countries, across Norway, Iceland, and, and the UK, w- there are a large number of people that are trying to tackle these challenges already. Um, and there are things that, that are doing, being done very well. Mm. But there are, of course, limitations. There's always monetary limitation, there's a personnel lim- limitation, and just the limitation in what the science can do. Um, so I think one of the key learnings that, that we've taken both here today and in, earlier in, in the project, um, is to make sure that we capture this mm. and use this as a, as a springboard, use this as an opportunity to say, we've recognised that we can get so far, but yeah. a reframing, a reframing of the thinking as much as anything, is one of the key things that, uh, the, that we want to take from this. Mm. Okay, so what, what, have, what have I learnt? Um, I've learnt that Iceland is a wonderful, beautiful country. Um, with have you, had you been before? Yes, I have. Yeah, yeah I, came, I came three years or so ago. Okay. Um, I was in the lucky. Op- I was had the, that lucky opportunity to come just after the first peak of COVID, and the country was open. Yes. And I came in, yes. and yes. there was no one here. Talk about tourists! I was a tourist. Yeah. Yeah. And there was no one here. There's an astonishing photo somewhere of of somebody at the height of lockdown, a, a local on his own at Thingvellir at the National Park, which has not been seen before or since, I would think. Yeah, I think we, we were, <laughs> were in the Western Fjords and for a night we were the only, we were in a camper van yeah. uh, and we were, the, we were the only people yeah. on the whole campsite. Yeah. It was wonderful. Um, 
but I understand. The, the, <laughs> Iceland wants to attract tourists, yes. understandably. Yes. But uh, but I wonder whether that's part of the challenge as well. It's the, it's the, that, sure. it's the rapid rise. Yeah. It's yeah. You can build infrastructure and services over time. Well, here's the thing. I mean, before COVID, we were at something like 3 million, for the sake of argument, 3 million tourists. And... There's a lot of talk about what the sustainable number is or the tolerable number of tourists is. I suspect if you'd said to someone 10 years ago or 15 years ago that in 2020 or 2019 we'd be at 3 million, somebody then would have said, oh, 3 million is too many. That we, that's not something yeah, that can be tolerated. You, can't, you sometimes don't know what the number is until you reach it, I suppose. Yeah, I, I think so. And you used the example from Scotland of the North Coast 500. Yeah. So... Um, I live, I've lived in Scotland for six years. I'm not from Scotland, as you might tell by, by, by my accent. Um, and I've heard very similar reports from people saying, oh, we used to go up to Donetsk or up to you know, the very northern part of, of, of mainland Scotland. Mm, mm. And on the right, you'd, you'd find no one there. Now it's full of camper vans and tourists and, and other traffic going through, just driving around in, in, in this loop. Um, on a single track road. On a single track road, often single carriageway road. Yeah, yeah. So the similarities actually, different landscape, but yeah, the yeah. similarities, yeah. You know, we've been in the field for, here in Iceland for the last two days, the similarities actually are, 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 are there. It's just different challenges, but the same. And, and I know that that sounds a bit, a bit of a funny way to say it, but, yeah. but you asked me a minute ago, what, what, what are the, 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 key, the key learnings? I think it is, it is exactly that. Is there are some things that are very similar and translatable, and we can take information from one country to another and say, well, they do this here, mm. they do that there. There's opportunities for collaboration and forwarding things. And then there's just differences. You know, there's there's just, just things that are going to be unique to our country. Mm. Scotland doesn't have volcanoes, for example. That we know of. Well, it used to, of course. <laughs> yes, it's a long time since I think Edinburgh has been imperiled by the volcanoes on, on which it sits. Well, as a, as a proud Glaswegian these days, um, no, I, don't, I don't want to wish Edinburgh ill. My name is Matthew Roberts. I'm the Managing Director for the Service and Research Division at the Icelandic Meteorological Office. Matthew, we are here today on the edge of this workshop that is taking place. Why here? Why at the, what is the Icelandic Met Office? So at the Icelandic Met Office, IMO, we're responsible for a range of natural hazards, monitoring and research, in particular responsible for the issue of real-time warnings. So whenever there's severe weather or, or a uh, expected volcanic eruption, mm. it's this institute that's responsible for the data collection, the analysis and, and the public warnings. And that's really important. It's not just about what we might in other countries consider to be climate. It's not just about rain and snow and wind geothermal activity is obviously in Iceland very important and it's absolutely part of your remit too. Yeah precisely and many of the hazards actually interact together so increased seismic activity, earthquake activity can also be occurring in geothermal and volcanic areas and that could be a precursor to volcanic unrest. So often we see a, a series of different phenomena that connect together in space and time and an evolving story that we have to follow increasingly using very accurate digital sensors. Yes. And uh, measurements that might not immediately spring to mind, like measuring the electrical conductivity of water, for example, can be used, I think, to detect whether a geothermal activity is likely. Yes, so the Icelandic ice caps uh, uh, often have volcanoes beneath them, such yes. as, as Mídalsjökull, which hosts the Katla volcano. 
And one of the great things about having an ice cap on top of a, of a, on top of a volcano is that when there is increased heat uh, emissions and any release of, of geothermal fluids or anything that, that we can trace as volcanic in origin, it shows up in the rivers. So electrical conductivity, the, mm. effectively the, how much electrical conductivity the water has itself is a great measure of how much geothermal fluid is in the river. So we use this to diagnose the, the health of the volcano and that can tell us often, if not hours and sometimes days in advance, that perhaps a flood is about to begin. Going back to the way that these threats can connect, that's a big part of what's being discussed today, isn't it? Yes, so we're looking at connections between hazards. Often, we, can all, we all know, for example, during the winter time, that if, if rain falls on saturated snow, the mm. rain can accumulate in the snow. The snow acts like a sponge almost. It holds the water, but all of a sudden it can then release the water, mm. and that can then produce a flood. So there you have an example of, of uh, wintertime weather conditions, pre-existing conditions on the ground leading to a flood. And we, we think about this in terms of interacting natural hazards, hazards that interact in, in, in terms of time and space, and also compounding. So when two or more hazards interact, but the output, the outcome is actually greater in mm. severity. And this really matters to the public and to tourists. Uh, the idea of this also translates over to risk. So for example, uh, the same wet uh, day in the winter time could give rise to uh, saturated slopes. The slopes could fail, a landslide could occur, and the landslide could block a road, meaning yeah. that people could be endangered that are driving on it um, or, or, or trapped or isolated. So we see very interestingly now how hazards can start off small, they can grow in scale, but the consequences for the built environment, for, for people on the move, is actually increasing. So in other words, our vulnerability as a society to a changing climate, to natural hazards, is actually increasing despite all of the scientific and technological advances. Now, when I joined the session earlier on, there was a conversation about the mudslides in Seydisfjörde mm. from 2020 mm. towards the end of 2020. Is that an example of how different hazards interacted? It's a very good example. That's an example of actually hazards and, and conditions over millennia actually uh, interacting on the slopes up of Seydisfjord. We have glacial deposits from the last glaciation, clay and, and other uh, um, um, uh, material. And it's that material that was actually released uh, back in 2020. Part of it could have actually been uh, frozen and in a warming climate that the frozen ground no longer exists. We can't guarantee that the ground is frozen any longer during the winter time. The, mm. the, the winter here can be exceptionally variable in terms of air temperatures and snow cover. So we have a number of different processes all catching up with, it, catching up with us at the same time. And really, looking, if you were to think about the say this few other landslides in 2020 as a, uh, as a textbook example, you would, you, maybe a few years ago, you would have said that's the absolute black swan, the most extreme example you could ever imagine. Now looking at it, uh, and thinking what happened and looking at other locations, we see that perhaps this is actually the future now of, mm. of, of, of a changing climate here in Iceland. And I was going to ask you precisely that. Is the changing climate that we see worldwide having you know, discrete and determinable effects such as, or, or does it contribute to the sort of thing we saw in say this year and indeed other parts of Iceland recently? It, it's certainly contributing at the moment. Now, there's very clear signs of that. What we see, for instance, is exceptionally uh, uh, wet conditions prevailing for many days, really uh, startling examples of atmospheric connections on a scale of the North Atlantic. So we see mm. moist air uh, in relation to hurricane formation in the Atlantic being uh, drifting up to Iceland 
feeding low pressure systems and almost acting like a conveyor belt of rainfall, meaning that the same location on the southern coast is receiving rain for days and days and days on end. These processes have happened in the past, but there's much more air heat being emitted into the atmosphere now. So what this means is that, yes, we have a varied uh, maritime uh, climate here to begin with, but uh, when we add more heat into the atmosphere, it simply means that those extremes become even, even more extreme. Is it possible, is it becoming more possible to give people warning about mudslides and avalanches? They seem to, by their very nature, it seems as if they happen without warning and can't be prepared for, can't be predicted. But is that the case? There are many ways of instrumenting the ground to be able to follow ground deformation that could lead to a landslide. And even you can use satellite-based products. So satellites in low orbit can actually map the terrain. Yeah. And by comparing two satellite images together, two radar images, we can actually see where there are subtle signs of, of ground movement. What we struggle with increasingly nowadays is that we are overwhelmed by data. We can, mm. There's no problem to collect data, but it's the challenge is to transfer it into usable, human-readable results and to keep pace with timescales that are often very short. So yes. when there's heavy rainfall occurring, we've got to consider how susceptible is the ground to sliding, how much rain has fallen already. So it's not just about what's happening today in terms of the weather forecast, it's what's been happening in the, happening in the weeks and months before, which can actually lead to this sort of tipping point almost. Yes. And you don't want to cry wolf, of course, either, no, because if no. you've got lots of tourists who are told that they can't go or shouldn't go to a certain place and then nothing happens, th th if that happens once or twice, people are going to start ignoring the warnings with potentially fatal results. Maintaining public trust yes. and the public's understanding of our role in society and the, and the importance of, of natural hazard warnings is essential. But unfortunately, because of the changing nature of the climate and the way in which hazards are interacting, we're constantly learning and having to almost rewrite the, the rule book in terms of, of how we analyze and how we respond. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, as, for the, as a message to the future, simply means there will be more uncertainty and there will be periods where we perhaps issue warnings, even evacuation recommendation and nothing happens but ultimately that's that's the price we pay for living in such a beautiful yes. country that we can recreate in and enjoy so much what lessons do you think are being learned and taught in the room next to us today so in today's meeting we've realized just exactly how how similar problems are between norway between the uk and iceland despite being separate countries we share actually the same weather patterns we share the same problems in terms of the impact on the built environment tourism issues are, are very similar and we realize that there's much more of an opportunity to work together. And actually, increasingly, we now realize it's the tourist population, it's visitors that maybe don't have the same long-term awareness. Those are the groups that we need to put more emphasis on to provide them with information so people can make more informed choices about the sites they visit and, and the risks they take. Yeah, I'm Magnus Tumik Wimmelson. I'm a professor of geophysics at the University of Iceland. Magnus, we hear and see from you quite a lot when there is significant geothermal activity in Iceland. As we sit here in the middle of May, we look back on a week when Katla was briefly felt to be threatening some kind of eruption. We'll, we'll deal with that first. But what happened there? Because there was a bit of a, not a panic, but there was concern for a day or two, wasn't there? Yes, there was. And uh, the reason was that there was just so intense earthquake activity in Katla for a short period of time and uh, the and the guidelines and that is based on let's say what we know from history and history is 
pre-instrumental type of it's just what people felt mm. and that tells all the all the known Katla eruptions go, and we have records back to 1625 written records that there were felt earthquakes before Katla eruptions uh, and uh, in, in, in the neighboring areas while there tends not to be anything going on most of the time not 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 anything that is felt by the local people so whenever there are large earthquakes uh, this is uh, taken seriously and looked at and then here we had three uh, and then that was over but you don't know that when the until a little bit of time has passed that this was sort of a one-off event so it was um, uh, it was a sensible response yes. to take the precautions of uh, which we can say well, that the minimal mm. okay we'll be on guard we're on guard and uh, we put uh, we'll put the uh, cattle on higher on higher alert and uh, one thing that was uh, decided was that tourist operations going to 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 the glacier uh, where a yokoslave would come mm. and possibly some gas th that would be suspended for the day and uh, what is what happens here in iceland when something like this uh, happens is that nowadays uh civil protection calls uh, and imo they call a a, a meeting uh, uh of there is a group of experts and it's a team meet, teams meeting and it happens very uh, at a very short notice and mm. we are all there and their teams are discussed and uh, and uh, things are assessed and uh, the response to this event was sort of decided in maybe mm. half an hour uh, but at the same time of course people were monitored this was being monitored you saw that there were these three earthquakes with some uh, over, over a short period of time and then there was nothing really much going on. Yes. But you don't know if this is the start of something or it was just so, a short event. So what does scientifically give you the confidence then to say, as you did, we're going to you know, lower the alert level, we don't think there's anything to worry about at the moment. What, what, what makes that decision possible? Well, um, the earthquake, the seismicity just stopped. Just stopped. Yeah. And there was no signal, no signal uh, like inflation signal or deformation signal like that that there had been significant movement on the mm. on the noon attacks where we have gps instruments not nothing there there was not no signal seen in the rivers and when 24 hours have passed or 12 hours or something then then this was an isolated event mm. uh, it doesn't give you um, doesn't predict the future but it means that the likelihood of something is happening now in the next in the coming hours is not heightened anymore but when this has just happened you don't know whether it's a start of something or an isolated related event now today the discussion that's been taking place as part of the emerge project a big part of this is about tourism and about the risks that tourists might face not just in this country but in in norway and parts of the uk as well are you worried that if tourist numbers continue to increase, more people are just going to be at risk from the kind of hazards that can be seen, are seen in Iceland. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is something that uh, is quite clear, that 
certain risks are heightened uh, because people are now in places where they didn't used to be. Yeah. Mm. The reason why very few people have died from direct impact of volcanic eruptions in Iceland, it's a very small number uh, that have died. There are people who have died from famine or from like in, after the Skaftar fires or, 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 or poisoning and, and that sort of stuff. 20% of the people of Iceland perished in, in, in after the 1783-1784 uh, light year eruption. Mm. None of them was killed by impact of the eruption. It was the uh, pollution, the killing, the, 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 the result of, of uh, the, the livestock being decimated and people have nothing to live on and so that sort of thing. The reason why there are so few people that have uh, died because of they were hit by drowned by floods or mm. or, or hit by uh, some uh, well pyroclastic flows or something is that Iceland has been so sparsely populated mm. it's a very cold place so people don't live on the slopes of volcanoes as you can see in some of the uh, in the tropics where where people uh, very densely populated areas yes like in in, in, uh, in Java, for example, uh, which is uh, a place with many volcanoes, but also very fertile and, 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 and very good conditions for people to live for, for centuries and thousands of years. But when something happens, then people, it's a very densely populated area. Here in Iceland, you have very few people living closer than, let's say, 20, 30 kilometers away from the nearest volcano. Mm. And this is the reason why people, why the effect, impact on, like uh, the hazard impact has been uh, no, no, not so great on, on, on directly on life. But when you have people, like 100 people possibly going to the top of Hekla yes. every day, good, good weather day, and so on and so forth, people going everywhere, going, going into ice caves around Katla and what have you, then you have much more people potentially at risk mm. when something happens. And this is just, there are so many people yeah. in places where nobody used to be. Well, the volcanic eruptions, the volcanic eruptions of the last couple of years, when you look back at the video from that and the photos from that, two things are really striking. Obviously, the volcanoes themselves, the eruptions are magnificent and extraordinarily impressive and, and frightening and, and all the rest of it. But also the sight of just so many people, some of them, you know, inches away from the, from the burning lava. And you think to yourself... How does someone get themselves <laughs> into that position? Why are they getting themselves into that position? You must look at that and, and, and think it's only a matter of time before something terrible happens if these numbers keep increasing and people keep putting themselves in danger in that way. Well, it depends on how you look at it, like with the lava. Yeah. If you approach it in the right way uh, and there is this sort of little lava flow, remember, I said little, Mm. Mm. Uh, uh, going down and you are sort of close to it you are not really necessarily it's not necessarily dangerous so there's a safe way to, to view these yeah things. for this type of event yeah. but if there is let's say a, 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 let's say an explosive eruption with a, with a, that can have collapsed asphalt and, 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 and possibly pyroclastic flows and something then you have to keep a safe distance. Same with the floods, Jökulhlaups. 
there are areas that can be inundated and they travel so fast that people just need to be out of harm's way when things happen. And, and that is a very large part of the, let's say, the hazard uh, mitigation and plans that are made here in Iceland have been concerned with floods caused by volcanoes under glaciers because they can be so mm. big and, and if we had something like the Katla eruption of 1918 uh, on a summer's day with people everywhere, uh, the like, uh, then it's very probable that lots of people will get killed mm. and therefore you have to get people out of the way uh, as soon as possible and this was not the case hundred years ago. There were no tourists and, yes. and what have you. So uh, that's just how it is. You have to, uh, and with the lavas, like uh, or the eruption that we had in Faradarsfjall, then that was uh, what we can call a pretty benign eruption, well behaved. Mm. But it was, but a lava flow is something that you don't stop easily. No. no. Uh, but uh, it hardly ever flows so fast that you can't run away from it. Uh, and there are certain situations that have to be avoided and therefore it was okay for people to go there if, uh, with the, because the flow rates were not high enough to generate uh, what we can call really hazardous amounts of gas because that's a danger that is if you have a very uh, large volume eruption mm -hmm. then you can have life-threatening situation in, in, in an area like we had in 2014-15 where a large part of the country was we had a very different situation then when we had an eruption that was like like 50 times bigger uh, but very similar in the way it behaved yes it was producing 50 times more gas and therefore uh, and a large area very large area was kept completely closed and there were guards making sure on the all, all the all, on the roads mm. on, on the tracks making sure that nobody went in there so put a lot of effort keeping away people away yes. from that place uh, uh, but here we had such a small event so it's all a question of scale i mean when you're walking down the road uh, if you're walking down the road and you see a cat okay you think there's a cat but if you walk down the road and you see a tiger, uh, most people would regard that <laughs> as a fight a hazard. Yes. It's a question of scale. Yes. But they're, they're, but they're both, they're both uh, uh, predators. Yes. There's an irony here, isn't there? Because I think if we look back to Erfjallökuld, which erupted in, what was that, 2011? 2010. Yeah, 2010. A lot of people think that put Iceland on the map as far as tourism was concerned. A lot of people learned about the country, wanted to come to the country. The irony being, of course, it made it impossible to do so because <laughs> airspace was closed for a number of weeks. Do you think that was, what do you think of that theory that people saw that happen and became fascinated by this country and the way that it behaves? Well, I think it's, uh, there's quite an element of truth because uh, it put Iceland on the map very, very strongly. It drew attention to Iceland's nature, and therefore, when and uh, when the uh, this eruption was had stopped, and mm. and then people realized that uh, well, it's an interesting place. I should go go there. So I think there is quite a, a, there's quite a, an element, a strong element of truth in this that this was. 
a very mm. strong, uh, if you could call it advertisement, <laughs> that money can't <laughs> buy. Uh, but nobody thought of it that way at that time. No, no. there was uh, it was more the opposite. But we saw this happen. Yeah. We saw this massive increase in tourism following. Uh, okay, prices were also rather uh, favorable compared to uh, what they usually are because of this was aftermath of the of the of, of the financial crisis and, yes. and the Iceland krona was very at a very low value. So possibly a combined effect. A big part of what's happening today is about messaging, how authorities can get messages out to not just tourists but to locals as well in the event of natural hazards posing uh, threat. Given what you do and given your area of interest, how important do you think that is to get credible messaging systems in place so that messages can go to the people who need to, who need to hear them? I think it's very important. And uh, there are two, there are several sides to this. There is the local people. Yes. And uh, there it's very important that uh, that trust is developed between the people studying and, and, and monitoring and the locals and that means that there need to be regular meetings so people get to know one another and this is the story everywhere in the world mm. that if you have met somebody asked them questions and uh, discussed things and so on you are much more likely to heed the advice when needed and this is something that people do in the south of Iceland, for example, have known very well, and the authorities there have been very active at uh, having engaging with, with, with the local people, bringing people from uh, yeah, scientists uh, to meetings. They've done it very well. And th this is very important. Then there is the other issue is the, this connection of how to get messages across to tourists. How do you, and and uh, people who are not Icelanders, if you like, I don't have the background that people in Iceland have, which is, uh, this is part of the, uh, just part of our existence. There mm -hmm. is uh, the volcanoes of Katla and Hekla and, and, and all this. This is something that is just part of everybody's uh, life in a, mm -hmm. in a sense, mm -hmm. but how much effect, uh, I would say it's more the local communities. So, but when it comes to, uh, I think it's more of a challenge to make visitors aware of of things and where, pe where which places are are where you need to be mm -hmm. on alert and where you should not go and so on. And there are, for example, you should not camp on Mivdalsandr, which is the pathway of Jökulhlaup from Katla. Uh, this is something Icelanders don't do, but if you're just driving around with a camper and you stop, okay, mm -hmm. I stop here at this and, and I'll, I'll sleep here. Mm. Um, that sort of thing uh, is is uh, something that is not so, it's not trivial to get across to no. these hundreds of thousands of people who come. Are you hopeful that there can be a solution to this, that a way can be found to allow people to enjoy this incredible country without putting it or themselves at risk? Well, most of the time they are not at risk because uh, there are certain areas that are. Uh, but I would say that there, I wouldn't. I would say there would be no harm done in that people are made aware of. Okay, if there is something, look at here. Uh, 
look up, you can look up information on this web page and so on and, 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 and that sort of thing. Um, because, you know, if, you, uh, if your message is, uh, you will all die unless you follow my advice completely, then that's not how, when you're on holiday, that's not the type <laughs> of message that you want. No. Uh, and therefore you go for, uh, therefore you have to get the message across in the right way. And there are, you have to just make sure, okay, if you go to this place, be aware of this and, and keep, keep and, and uh, if something, for example, happens around, uh, if there is an alert for Hekla, Within a certain area, there will be a, you will get an alert in your on your on your on your mobile. Um, danger of eruption in Hekla, please go away and so on. Uh, and and if people are, if this, if this is people try to keep this, get this sort of message to people. Then I think people are much more susceptible to accepting that, okay, if there's something fishy in that area, I'll, I will get notice on, and then I should uh, get away as fast as possible. Yeah. Uh, I think that type of messaging would probably work. Uh, but there is also equally those who operate, tourist operators, they have to be sort of plan their things in a sensible way. And um, I think they mostly are, but still there is always this thing if you're organizing this is to a cave in a glacier. Yes. And uh, then, well, you have to have a plan to respond to things effectively because it's too late to make the decisions when things are happening. You know, if, uh, if uh, we, we learn how to, first aid is something that we try to all, all to learn and keep up and we try to know how to use the fire extinguisher in our, well, most, many of us do, and, and that sort of thing. All these l mm -hmm. little things, uh, if, if something happens, uh, which we could say uh, should be regarded, well, when you, before you walk across the street, look both ways and see if there's a car coming. It should be just part mm -hmm. of, of life, uh, and you don't need to think much of it most of the time. Be prepared. It's, so, it's somewhere around this. Somewhere uh, that's that's where we need to be, mm. and not to put, uh, for example, if you are if you are uh, in an area where earthquakes can happen, then you don't should not put a heavy statue on a on a <laughs> shelf above your bed and that sort of thing. Uh, common sense things, and they 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 solve ninety percent of most things. It's 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 uh, somewhere in this place where we need to be. And uh, the, 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 the problem is, of course, people who are not used to these things, uh, they are either very afraid of them or ignore them uh, when you are visiting some place. So common sense. It's a, common sense is, is solves just most things, and, and that's just how it is. And, uh, and, and briefly, technology solves the rest, because we spoke to Matthew earlier, who talks about the way that technology can make it better all the time when it comes to warning people more accurate it can give them more time to respond to threats yes well what what we should not forget is the how things have advanced with time yeah. and if we go back 40 years and let's say just 40 years or 30 years almost all eruptions that happened came 
I wouldn't say out of the blue, but with very short warning, and and, and people um, did not expect mm. uh, that something like if you go like that was happening. And as I say, if we go, there is now 50 years since the Haymai eruption, which was the most dangerous eruption that we've had uh, this century, I would say, because it was it was pure luck that it started 250 meters away from the nearest houses, the island of Haymai. And it happened three hours, uh, two hours after the wind had dropped. If it had happened five hours earlier, then there was a very strong uh, easterly wind, there was a storm, then it would have brought the, the, the pyroclasts over the houses and put them to fire and everything in, a, in, a, in the middle of a storm. Uh, so it's a, and this all happened with no warning. Yeah. Now nothing happens without warning because we have a, a very good seismic network, that, uh, earthquake network that, that sees, sees what's going on, that something is going on. You don't know whether it will lead to an eruption or not, but you, 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 all eruptions that have happened in the last 20-something um, years, uh, we've been on our toes. And for the Hecla eruption of 2000, la latest eruption of Hecla, then my colleague called me and said, well, I think Hecla is going to erupt in the next half hour. I was changing the, 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 on the seismometers and it started 20 minutes ago. And this was put on the, oh, oh, and, and the radio in the uh, roof at six o'clock, it's expected that Hecla will start to erupt in the, co the next few minutes. It started at 6.15 or 18.15. So, uh, and that was because people had seen this happen yes. before and knew yes. how it behaved. And uh, so we are moving in the, in, in the direction that we know much, much more. And then another revolution was the inflation, the GPS and, 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 and the satellite monitoring of, of volcano deformation and then much better monitoring of what's going on everywhere. And uh, so there have been large strides made in the last uh, quarter century and the last 40 years. So we're much better prepared and uh, we know much more what to expect and, 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 or, and much better prepared for early warning. So things are moving in the right direction, that's absolutely clear. Michael Cranston, I'm the lead forecaster for flood hazards in Scotland. What are you learning today being here in Iceland when obviously flood risks and various other climatic and geothermal risks are so present in the country? Yeah, it's, it's fascinating to see the country. First time in Iceland, wonderful to see the, the, the nature, but the natural hazards that clearly Icelanders and the tourism industry face. Um, the scale of flooding is something I've never seen before. Mm. I mean, when you compare it to Scotland, we've got big rivers, uh, but nothing on the scale of the hazards and the flood risk that is suffered here from time to time in Iceland. And can you learn from that? Are there lessons about what happens here that are transferable? We can. I mean, there's lots of synergies. We're all in the same industry. We all try and provide warnings as timely as possible. Uh, what Matthew and his team does here in IMO is very similar to what we do. Mm. So we can share experiences. Lots of things from the workshop that we've had today, very similar issues. 
um, how accurate we can provide these warnings, how timely, who are they going to, getting to the people that need them yeah. quickly uh, before the hazard. How much of this is about mitigation in as much as you can when you talk about flood risks over a, an extended period, perhaps? How, how much of the conversation is about what societies can do to lower the risk in the first place? Yeah, I don't think it's about mitigation. You can see the scale of the the hazard. I mean, we passed the, the longest, or the, the former longest bridge, road bridge in Iceland, 900 metres, now completely closed because mm. the river has changed course. You can't manage that. What you need to do is ensure that communities, the people visiting the area are aware of the hazards and know what to do when that river flood happens. A big theme in the conversations I've had today, maybe in the panel as well, maybe in the discussion, is about credibility. It's about making sure that when those messages go out, they are believed. It's about making sure that there isn't an element of crying wolf so that messages are always trusted. How do you think it's best to strike that balance? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, you've got to have a single credible voice when it comes to flood warning. It's got to be trusted and ensure that people that get that warning act upon it. Saying that, obviously the challenge is if you think there's a low likelihood or a small chance that we're going to get one of these huge glacial floods in five days ahead, but there's only a small chance of it, how do you communicate that? Mm. How do people respond to it? We have the same problem in Scotland. If we think there's something going to happen, we need to communicate that. But yeah. it's encouraging that response on the ground when it's such a... We don't have that yes. much confidence. And even if you can quantify it, if someone said to me there's a 10% chance of the location that I'm in flooding in the next couple of days, I, I might say, well, I'll play the odds. I might think to myself, well, there's a 90% chance it won't happen. Yeah. I, I, even when you do quantify it, there's a problem there, isn't there, with people second-guessing the decision? There is. I mean, we do this in our daily life. There was a wonderful anecdote that somebody told me many years ago. If there was a 50% chance of it raining today, what would you do? You would take a jacket or an umbrella. If there was a 5% chance that the plane you're about to get on develops engine failure, what would you do then? It's that mm. kind of... I'd probably still get on the plane. I'll take my chances. I, <laughs> I might not, but I guess that depends on people's appetite, doesn't yes, it? Yes. But if you say to people, well, look, there's a 5% chance that in a few days' time that community you're going to go to and that road bridge will be wiped away, then what would you do? Mm. You'd certainly keep mm. an eye out for the weather yeah, yeah. warnings. Yeah. In terms of what you can bring then to the table, literally, in that discussion today, what, what experiences have you brought and talked about? I think when we talk about flood warnings, we do things in a little bit in a different way. We have people that are actively signed up to receive our warnings, so you you register with SEPA. Mm. And SEPA is? Scottish Environment Protection Agency, we're the Flood Warning Authority in Scotland. So you would register for an account, and then if we are forecasting a flood hazard, we would send somebody a, a text message. Um, now, I understand in Iceland it's done slightly differently. It's put out through the civil protection authorities, and they do it in a good way. They use cell broadcasting, which is excellent. Everybody gets that message. And that, that is about, without going into the weeds of the, the technical nature of that, it's about making sure that a mobile phone or any network gets a message in a particular area. Absolutely. The way we've got customers in Scotland, you have to sign up to that service, whereas if you're here on holiday, you're driving through an area, you're not signed up for that no. service, so how will you get that warning? 
sell broadcasting, just telling everybody in that area is the really effective way to get that message out. Hayley Fowler, and I'm Professor of Climate Change Impacts at Newcastle University in the UK. A big part of the conversation today, a big part of the Emerge project is about the effects of climate change and how I suppose they interact with what happens in Iceland that's maybe not related to climate change, geothermal energy and geothermal activity. Are you struck by the the kind of interplay between those two? Yeah, I mean, um, Iceland's a really interesting place, both in terms of, I guess, climate variability um, and the... The, the occurrence of extreme weather at the moment anyway, but also thinking about climate change um, and particularly the interaction with um, geothermal, um, geophysical processes and, you know, volcanic activity, um, obviously very volcanically active. Um, climate change is expected to increase temperatures, obviously cause more melting. Um, I know there's a particular worry over the, the changes in glacial ice mass and how that might affect, for example, the activity of volcanoes. If you imagine they're weighted down at the moment mm. by this glacial ice, um, and then you know ha- how does that affect activity? I don't think there's a great understanding of of that particular aspect. Right. Um, and then there's also things like, for example, how extreme rainfall changes and increases in particular might affect things like landslides. Um, and um, permafrost, of course, plays into this as well. Not in other areas, but because you have permanently frozen soils certainly throughout um, the winter months you know with with a warmer temperature those will not necessarily be as frozen um, and therefore you can have more ground movement as well. Well that's really interesting because we might think or the layman like me might think of something like a volcano or volcanic activity as being completely independent of climate change but what you're saying is that there are triggers there are effects that climate change could have to change the volcanic activity that we see. I'm saying that um, it's possible that um, the, the changes in glacial ice mass, um, and obviously those are going to be reduced in a warming climate, could have a, an effect on volcanic activity. Um, I don't think we know for certain how much of an effect or whether there will be an effect, for example, um, but it could potentially have an effect. I think something we do know more about it is this effect on perhaps... Um, less permafrost, um, warmer, um, more early melt of permafrost, and therefore the uh, the propensity for greater ground movement. Mm. And particularly when you couple that with extreme rainfall and the fact that precipitation year-round is projected to increase in Iceland, and you're going to have wetter soils, um, then you can get more of these landslides, debris flows, that kind of thing happening. Now, what sort of lessons are being learned or were being learned at the panel and what kind of, what kind of teaching was going on? This was a, a meeting of the Emerge project. The idea was to increase knowledge between three countries, as we've heard, the UK, Norway and Iceland. What sort of information was being usefully shared, do you think? I think we found we've we've definitely um, found there's there's quite different potential communication paths and responses in remote regions, and the projects the Emerge project is particularly about remote regions mm. as opposed to urban areas, which I think have been you know quite well studied. Um, one of the particular issues in in urban in, in remote regions um, and these rural areas is that they're often cut off. You know, there's one communication route, there might only be one electricity infrastructure path, there might only be one transport corridor um, and when you do have extreme events happen, um, they can be cut off. 
Um, and it's this level of trust that people have to have in the authorities when they issue warnings and how you best communicate those issues through to um, two communities. I think one, of, one, one particular thing that I've taken away from, from this meeting about Iceland is that things happen on a much grander scale here than they do in other countries. <laughs> you know, you have a volcanic yes. eruption, you have um, 40 kilometer wide floods. It's just a crazy place. Mm. Um, there's mm. the potential for that to happen here. It doesn't happen in other countries. So everything happens on a much bigger scale in Iceland. Which is, I think, one of the attractions. <laughs> as long as you're not caught up in the flood it's an no, attraction it, 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 indeed but you're right it is a, a, a geothermally vast and and you know, place it's also very ancient but it's also very modern because this land on which we are sitting this country is still being built isn't it it's still being geothermally created mm. geologically created I should say. and i think um i think one of the other things that i've taken away from this meeting is is really how well the um the icelandic met service are doing at providing these warning services um, and moving from not just, um, I suppose, weather warnings, um, but, but through to impact-based warnings yes. as well, which I think is a really important thing that we can learn, actually, in other countries, because we're not quite as good at doing that. Well, it's something I've been struck by since living here as a resident and a citizen, is that the colour-coded warning system, the weather warning system, is very well understood and very well respected by people in this country. Yellow, orange, red. People generally know that in, in the rare event of a red warning, you just don't leave the house pretty much. Orange, you take very seriously. Yellow, you keep an eye on things throughout the course of the day. It's well understood. It's well trusted. Well, I mean, the colour-coded warning system actually comes from the UK, from the UK Met Office originally, um, and has now sort of proliferated to other parts of the world, including Iceland. I think it's a, a really good system. Um, although there are some issues with um, the yellow level warnings because they can either mean um, a quite low likelihood, um, but it's, you know it, it's a low likelihood event, but it might be quite serious. Yes, there's or a matrix, isn't there? So you multiply the severity by the likelihood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Or it can be um, a, a, an event that has a relatively high likelihood but isn't that severe. And so there's some issues there. Um, I think that it might be really helpful to have an international standard on these type of things. And I know that the UN is thinking about this at the moment. So the UN's got this new initiative that they um, announced about this time last year, I think, um, where they're um, attempting to provide extreme weather warnings for all mm. in the next five years. And I think having a standard on how you communicate these type of risks impact-based risks, not just severe weather, to the public would help because particularly then tourists could actually interpret warnings wherever they go as well if they're standardised. Yes, well certainly here in Iceland we do try to get those weather warnings out to everybody as quickly as possible and those colour-coded weather warnings as well uh, as far as tourists are concerned and there does seem to be an increasing recognition that they need to be taken seriously. We're sitting here in May, the weather is pretty average, it's much like it is in the UK, maybe a couple of degrees less. Have you been here in the winter? Have you been to Iceland before? No, this is my first okay. time in Iceland um, and um, it's an absolutely beautiful country. Yes. It really is. If you are here in the winter, as I'm sure you'll be aware, the climate is very different and it is very striking when you come here to live for the first time as I did. I moved over in December and I'd left my car at the airport for four days. And when I returned, it was as if it had been glued to the ground because the snow had blown in, melted, refroze, melted again. There was, there was ice connecting my car 
as if with superglue <laughs> to the, the road. It was quite extraordinary. There's a, there's a level of coping that needs to happen with the weather here that doesn't happen in the UK, that is almost never necessary in the UK. Yeah, absolutely, I agree. You have a, a whole level of um, extra um, hazards here than in the UK, but I think that's one of the reasons why, um, and particularly because the local population is such so much smaller, really, than the, than the tourist population yes. now, particularly over the last, what, um, 10 to 12 years, there's been this massive explosion in tourists, um, and those really increase the level of risk because you, in, you know, you increase that exposure part of that risk mm -hmm. equation. Risk is some, it's the hazard times the vulnerability of the population times the exposure. And actually putting a, a large additional population into these um, areas of um, potential hazard is, is a real problem. And as well, because those tourists aren't actually conversant with those risks like the native population would be. That's something we've not really talked about as much, the idea that tourists are potentially causing some of these problems by not understanding how the climate works, by not understanding how the country works. We've talked a lot about the risk that tourists pose to themselves, maybe by being in dangerous situations, but you think there's certainly room in the conversation for the idea that tourists themselves can make things worse by simply not understanding what's happening. I mean, yes. I mean, I, I guess I'm I'm kind of meaning that the 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 risk is is raised because of so many more people in the just area. The just the sheer number of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. just the yeah, sheer yeah. numbers of people. But I mean, you, you, there is the potential that you, as, as you say, you're increasing the risk to to people who have to perhaps go out and rescue tourists, or um, maybe tourists ignore warnings, and not because they're particularly. Um, you know, try, trying to be killed by a flood or whatever, but they just don't understand what's going on. That they're, they're not, um, you know, they, they don't understand the emergency warning systems. Yeah. They don't necessarily look at the weather forecasts in the same way that a native um, would. Um, it happens in Scotland as well. It happens in, in Norway. I'm sure it happens in, in all countries. Tourists are less able to cope with um, information um, mm. because because you don't know how to interpret it, and that's part of the part of the um, beauty, mm. I suppose, of what happens at the Atlant Icelandic Meteorological Office is that they have all of these data streams coming in, and the key skill actually is to interpret all of these things and yeah. send out something that's coherent as a message to the public. And for tourists or visitors, you can you can kind of understand why they might not be paying attention to warnings because when you're on holiday, you're switching off literally. In some cases, you aren't paying attention in the same way to the news as you might in your home country. So it's forgivable, I think. It's understandable, isn't it, that it's going to be harder to get these messages to reach tourists. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you don't, you don't want to know that a volcano is about to explode when you're on a holiday. <laughs> well, unless you want to Instagram it, which, of course, is the other thing that happens here. So many of these dangerous and uh, seismic events literally are, are Instagrammable and, and they are attractions in themselves. I mean, that poses its own problem. Yes. So disaster tourism. I mean, yes. it, it happens, happens all <laughs> over the place, um, basically, um, that tourists put themselves in danger. Um, obviously, before Snapchat, before Facebook, before all of these other social media, Twitter, etc., people mm. weren't so interested, perhaps, um, but people like to now go there. Um, I, I imagine you even have people flying in to see some of these yeah. eruptions, increasing mm. tourism. That's Hayley Fowler, Professor of Climate Change Impacts at Newcastle University. My thanks to her and to everyone else that I spoke to at the Emerge Project workshop taking place last month at the Icelandic Met Office. And here on Roof English at some point in the near future, we're going to be heading back to the Met Office for a more general look at the work that it does, how those colour-coded forecasts are generated, the sheer 
quantity of data that comes into the Icelandic Met Office every day and how that is turned into the incredibly useful and timely information on which we all rely here in Iceland. I'm Darren Adam, this is Ruv English and you can get in touch with the service anytime. We are English at ruv.is. You're listening to the Ruv English podcast. To hear more and for all the news from Iceland in English, just head to ruv.is English.